All right, guys. How y'all doing? One of you is doing well? That's it. Everybody else, your life is just falling apart. It's a rough, yeah. It's been a rough week. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah, who here is a sinner? Who here is a mess? Who here needs a savior? Who here needs Jesus to put them back together? All right, we can say amen to that. We can say amen to that. Um, well, my name's Nick. If I have not met you, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Happy to bring you God's word week in and week out. Although from time to time, I, I, I get a little break. Last week, Chris Keener did a wonderful job. I don't actually know if he's here this morning, but, um, oh, he's with the kids, man. He's preaching again, except to your youngsters. Um, but yeah, so we are going to be in Luke's gospel this morning. Um, and we've been in this text for a little while. We are kind of You'll see, but we're launching out of this text into something bigger. Um, but turn with me, if you will, to Luke 6, verses 37 to 42. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we got some lovely gentlemen that, that uh, will deliver one to you. But we're in Luke's gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 6, starting in verse 37. I'll read, we'll pray, and uh, dive in. says this, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And he, Jesus, also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see clearly the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. God, I felt called to linger on this text, perhaps even longer than most of us are comfortable with. Because of how important I think it is. That we learn to discern the log in our own eye. That we learn from you how to truly be helpful. In addressing sin or other things in our brothers and sisters. God I'm praying that you would use our time here this morning to. Repair not only our hearts but our relationships. I pray that you would make us wise. I pray that you would make us wise. So that like in the Proverbs, we see when we open our mouths, it's like a tree of life. And people just know we love them. We care about them. We're serving them. We're under them. We're for them. But I pray that you would still us in these moments. You would help us to hear your voice. You would shine the light of the cross over us once again. Let us know how loved we are by you. That we might start to show more of that love to others. In Jesus' name. All right, guys. Let's um, dive in. My first two messages on this text really dealt uh, specifically with the verse-by-verse But in our exposition of these verses, a subject of utmost importance emerged. Um, It's a subject that, in my opinion, deserves a closer and more thorough investigation. Uh, It is the wonderful subject of judgment. I'm not talking about uh, God's judgment of us. I am talking about our judgment of one another. It's a subject of um, 
great relevance to us, whether we realize it at first or not. And there's kind of this major double edge to it where it can be used for wonderful things if we know how to handle uh, such a thing, but it could also be used to destroy and to hurt. Let me try to show you how relevant I think this is um, to your life just by asking a few questions for your reflection. Have you ever seen a brother or sister in the Lord continuing in sin and not known how or even whether you should approach them on it? Have you ever gone out with an unbelieving friend and when you hear about their lifestyle or hear about the sort of things that they like or do, you kind of wonder, should I be bringing this up or how do I respond in this situation? Or am I just being judgmental or how do I navigate that? Or have you ever noticed in your soul a slight smugness, you could say? When you get the chance to correct another. Oh, come on over here. Let me tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you what's right. And inside, you just kind of love it. What's that? Have you ever experienced the pain of having your sins pointed out to you by someone you weren't sure actually loved you? Kind of reversing that for a moment. You ever been the recipient of that? Like, yeah, you're right about what you said, but man, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're coming at it in the wrong way. Can't put my finger on it, but it doesn't feel right. Or have you ever, God forbid, been a part of or witnessed, watched a church splitting and splintering and just breaking and the whole thing just kind of comes crashing down and everything in you just wonders, couldn't this have been Avoided? Is there any way that this could have been avoided? I imagine you answered yes to many, if not all, of these questions. And if, if indeed you did, then I think you too have come to face the difficult subject of, of judgment, of, of, of judging uh, one another. Um, there's this sense in us that in some way we're supposed to do it. We know that God doesn't call us as Christians to just be kind of head in the sand, naive, you know, uh, uh, flimsy sort of people. We're supposed to stand for stuff, stand for truth and do it in love. But the problem is we often don't know how in the world to go about this. We get tripped up and we hurt one another. We hurt ourselves in the process. It's for this reason that um, what I'm doing is essentially taking three messages. This is now the second to put forward what I'm calling a field guide to merciful judgment. I feel the subject is that important, a field guide to what I would call merciful judgment. Let me just clarify what I mean. Merciful judgment is not arrogant. It's not condemning. It's not destructive. That's the sort of thing Jesus in our text condemns in verse 37. Judge not. He's not talking about all forms of judgment. And we know that because he comes out in verse 42 and essentially says, if you, when you judge, judge in this way. So that you can take the speck out of a brother's eye and actually help him. You still see the speck. You still see what's off or what's wrong. You're still making judgments, but it's merciful. It has as its end something that's, that, that's restorative, something that blesses, that's for his or her good. Merciful judgment is humble. It's hopeful. It's restorative. It's the kind of judgment that in love helps a brother remove a speck from his eye so he can see clearly again. But that Verse 42 kind of judgment doesn't come natural to any one of us. And I've said it almost every week as we've looked at this, that there is an undertow in our flesh that will pull us from verse 42 back to verse 37. We will think, man, I'm just getting that speck out. But truly, we are starting to condemn. We're coming from the place of arrogance and, and superiority. We're just pulled back into the mess. And again, that's why... I think we need a field guide. That's why I took 
panes on your handout, if you look on the back side, to create a workflow. I want us to slow down and go, wait, what are we doing when we're doing this so that we have something to orient us in the field of life, out where we really live, as we approach subjects, so that the flesh can't just catch us uh, and, and twist us. We think we're serving God when really we're on the enemy's side. I want us to be wise in the way that we love others. You ever been hurt by, by people bringing up things? Man, I have. I, I, want, I want to try to help us avoid that in this church. So I've organized this field guide around four essential questions, the first three of which we dealt with last time. The fourth, that's going to be this week and next. Uh, to give you just a brief, and this is just bullet point review so that it gets us back in the flow for those of you who weren't here uh, two weeks ago when I, when I gave the, the first part of this, uh, let me look at those first three questions with you. First, who should we mercifully judge? Well, bullet points. First and foremost, we are to judge ourselves. That's the whole take the log out of your own eye scenario. First, look at yourself, at your own heart. And then, who should we mercifully judge? Well, those inside the church we saw. Those who take upon themselves the name brother or sister. Not those outside the church. They are held to a different standard. And it's not our call to come in there and address them in the same way. That's 1 Corinthians 5.12. Second question in our field guide, what should we mercifully judge? What should we mercifully judge? Well, we talked about doctrinal and moral issues, but not every doctrinal and moral issue. We mentioned uh, closed hand doctrinal issues and black and white moral issues. In other words, things in the scriptures that are very clear and very central. Those are the things that if our brother or sister is straying from, in love, we get in, we get in the fray and say, man, I'm a little worried because that's not the gospel. Or I'm a little worried because Christ clearly says, man, if we're doing that, we won't inherit the kingdom of God. So there are, there are clear things that we address from time to time if God calls us to it. Who, what, now why should we mercifully judge? And I said, man, a lot of times, why do we get in the fray and, 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 and judge other people? Well, that's because we're concerned for uh, my own good, my own glory. I want what's best for me, and I want to feel, and it makes me kind of feel a little better about myself pointing stuff out in you. But the motivations that should drive all of this is our brother or sister's good. We want to see them come to know God more. We want to see them healed, restored, lifted up, and then ultimately God's glory. Now, we come to that fourth question. We've seen who, we've seen what, we've seen why. Now, how should we mercifully judge? How? It's one thing to say, hey, when you judge, judge mercifully. And it's another thing to actually work that out. And get a sense of what it looks like in real time, in real space, in your life, your relationships. So from the scriptures, I have come up with um, what I suppose is is 10 adverbs, 10 words that qualify this merciful judgment and point us in the direction of how it is actually going to be worked out in my life. We're going to look at the first three this time and. Last seven will go quicker next week. So, how should we mercifully judge first? When we do it, we do it slowly. We do it slowly. We deal first here with the issue of pace. The issue of pace. And I think that's right for us to begin there because we must confess, I think, this is where our judgments often go wrong. You've heard the phrase, you know, we jump to conclusions. How many of you have made a fool of yourself jumping to conclusions? Oh, I know what's going on with that person. I'm going to jump in and address it. Oh. Oh, I had no idea what was really going on. So the issue of pacing is where we begin. So often, if I'm honest with you, 
what I can be like is, is, is almost like a shark on the scent of blood. You know, someone says something wrong doctrinally or someone does something wrong morally and we're on it. And that's not the sort of thing that we will see God calls us to. But before we get there, um, just to show you kind of the, the depths of this, um, I want you to be aware that there are industries there are entire industries in our culture these days that, that cater and feed and leverage this sort of impulse in us. The impulse in us that, that, that uh, causes us to want to jump to judgment. Feels good about just, hey, blanket statements before we even know much at all about the situation. I mean, how many of you check out in the grocery store and you're walking out, you look at the magazines and you read the headlines or whatever? And you kind of get a sense, man, okay, I see what's happening. They're talking about this person whose marriage just fell apart. Oh, did you hear that? We're all, you know, talking with one another about how stupid they are. I knew it. I knew it from the moment they said I do. It was going to be doomed to failure. Or, you know, there's, you know, headlines about this woman who used to look like this and now she gained 50 pounds. And we all just kind of stand in judgment about how lazy or how gluttonous she must be or whatever. These things kind of, and a lot of these programs on TV or these magazines, they kind of invite us, they call us to, to judge, to cast our judgment, to, to, to look down our eye on these people. And we're losers. And, and the thing is, is we kind of take this, this sick delight in the whole exchange. And, and, and the, the industry knows it. That's why they feed it to us. There's this pleasure that we have in it. Or if you think about even much of our political commentary these days, it attempts to leverage this impulse in us in the same sort of way. I mean, gone are the days when uh, weighty arguments held sway in the, in the public square. Now, what holds sway are, are quick-witted arguments that kind of tear down the other person, right? So... If I can be quick in my criticisms and in my judgments and in my slams, then I actually rise up above others in this culture. That's how it works. Being slow, man, you get behind. We actually feed this idea of being quick to judge, quick to condemn. They're the ones who succeed. But this impulse in us stands in clear antithesis and God's, uh, to God's word on the matter. His imperative concerning our judging of others is, is absolutely clear. Slow that train down before someone gets hurt. I'm going to just let Proverbs pummel us on this for just a moment. In love. In love. Proverbs 12:16. The vexation of a fool is known at once. In other words, when something bothers a fool, there's no governor on his lips. When my heart's burning, I need to say something, and out it comes. Just give vent to whatever is on your mind, whatever judgmentalism is there in your heart, just coming out. It's known at once. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Or Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In all of this, it's the fool who's going quick. Let me show you it put positively. What's the wise man like? Proverbs 17, verse 27, whoever restrains, holds back his words, has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit, not a fiery spirit that needs to uh, vent, he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Hear that? You restrain your words, you hold back on your words, and you're a man of understanding, you're a man of wisdom. And when you do speak, it's, it's like that tree of life. People know, wow, you, you heard me. You know me. You've entered into this. I can listen to what you have to say. 
There's life here, not just condemnation from above. In the New Testament, James puts it this way. This is James 1, 19 and 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, James flips it on us. If if we're honest, what we typically do is, man, I'm I'm slow or I'm yeah, I'm slow to hear and I'm quick to speak. I'm jumping to let me get my opinion out. But James is saying, okay, no. If you're going to be quick at anything, let it be quick to shut up and listen. Let's be slow at pretty much everything else. Let's suspend judgment. Let's suspend our opinions on the matter until we're more aware of what's actually going on. So we have to ask the question here, why? Why is my initial impulse not always in line with the righteousness that God requires? Why the call to slow down before expressing my opinions? Why do I begin here with the issue of pacing, that merciful judgment is slow? I'm going to give us two reasons. First, we need to slow down because of what we don't know. Because of what we don't know. Quite simply, we need to be slow in judgment because we are slow in our understanding. We are not like God. We take in things bit by bit, fact by fact. We don't know the whole picture at the beginning, so we need to go slow as we investigate. It'd be like like if Sherlock, well, maybe Sherlock Holmes is a bad example. He probably does show up on the scene and know exactly who did it right away. But it's a process. A guy would lose his job if he gets up first day, first hour, and say, oh, that's the guy, convict him. Maybe wrong 90% of the time. And yet we're doing that. We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Let me give you two admissions that we must be willing to make on this point. First, we need to admit that we don't know others as well as we like to think. And this gets harder the closer you are to a person. Spouses, can you agree with me? That the the closer you are to a person, the more you quote-unquote know the person, the more you think you know their heart before you've ever even asked them what they mean or by what they said or did. Oh, I know what's inside. You're trying, to, you're trying to get at me again. You're trying to hurt me. I've seen you do this before. I know. Do you? Do we realize we take the heart of God when we talk, or talk, take the place of God when we talk about seeing into the hearts of others and we jump to it before asking, but what's in there? I love what Oswald Chambers has to say on this. He says, stop having a measuring rod for other people. There is always one fact more in every man's case about which we know nothing. So let's go after those facts before we start measuring and judging, right? Let's ask those questions and get to know. What if instead of jumping to conclusions... We decided, man, we're going to ask questions. What if as a church we committed, we committed to assume the best until we're sure of the worst? I mean, this happens all the time, right, within the days of technology. Have you ever done that where you've, you know, you called someone or you emailed? This happened to me last, uh, this last week. I texted Rochelle about something we needed. Didn't respond, Right. What happens sometimes when, when, when that goes on? You're thinking, oh, that person, they don't like me. Oh, that. Now, this didn't happen with Rochelle because I knew her. And I was preparing this sermon, actually. So I was thinking about these very things. But what happens? Oh, they have something against me. Why aren't they responding? Oh, they're, oh, you know, they, they're trying to, you know, one-up me or get, get at me in some way because they're mad about some situation. And then you realize later on, oh, I just got lost somehow in the wherever texts go. And they didn't even receive it. Now, I feel dumb because I was getting all heated. You ever been there? What if we what if we assume the best until we were sure of the worst? That'd be awesome. What a healthy church this would be. There's another admission we need to make here. Um, We need to admit that we uh, don't even know ourselves as well as we like to think. So not only do we not know others as well as we like to think, we don't even know ourselves. 
as well as we like to think. Our own motivations, our own hearts. Jeremiah 17 says our heart is deceptive. It's evil. Who can know it? And yet we think we have clear sight on these things and on our motivations and on what's going on with us. But if there's anything we get from our text in Luke 6 and this conversation about the log in our eye, it's that we don't know. It's that there's this kind of propensity in us, this force in our nature that will kind of move us to uh, downplay, underplay the, the log in our own eye while we exaggerate the speck in others. So we don't know even our own selves like we are. Let me show you what I mean. When we think about some of our motivations to to, uh, bring something up with a brother or sister, let me show you how it can be tainted. And we're not even aware of what's going on sometimes. We can be motivated by pride or insecurity. Can we not? Like, oh, I want to bring this up in you because it makes me feel better about me. We find ourselves harsher in our judgments because we're a bit insecure about that issue or there's a competitive edge to us and we want to one-up, make sure everybody sees. Or we can be motivated by a sense of bitterness. Is this not true? Are you not a little bit more critical of those people that have been more critical of you? Meaning, oh yeah, I better bring that up. But really, why? Let's get into the heart. Well, it's because I'm so hurt by them. It's because they hurt me and I kind of want to hurt them back. And so judging or bringing up a way that they fail, I'm not doing it for their good. I'm not doing it because I love them. I'm doing it because I kind of want to get back at them. There's a vengeance thing going on here. However hidden it is under a Christian veneer. We could be motivated with a concern for our own comfort. Sin affects other people. So other people's sin affects you. And so you can be motivated to help somebody get rid of their sin because it's bothering you. I'm going to bring up how you use your words or I'm going to bring up how you whatever uh, because it's bothering me. No concern for true love for them and wanting to see them restored and come to know more of God. Concern for self is driving us in these moments. So we don't, we don't know others the way that we like to think. And we don't know even ourselves the way we like to think. Therefore, we move slowly. But I have another reason for us. We move slowly because of what we don't know. But we also need to move slowly because of what we do. No. And here's what I mean by this. I'm not talking about what we do know about other people or what we do know about ourselves. I'm talking about what we know about our God. What we know about our God. In other words, we are slow in judgment because we know that our God is slow in judgment. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me read it again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God declares his name, his glory to Moses in Exodus 34, that's the first place he goes. I am slow to judge. To come down. And if redemptive history and biblical history tells us anything, it is that God is slow. Human history should have ended with Adam. The ground should have just fallen out and we go to hell. But he's patient. He's long-suffering. He's slow. And we need to stand in awe of this fact. Because God is slow to bring his judgment upon men. Not for the same reasons that you and I are. It's not because he doesn't know all the facts about the situation or he doesn't know his own heart. He knows everything fully, truly, rightly. He moves slowly, not for any of those reasons, but because he is gracious. Because he loves. Because he delights not in the death of the wicked, but in seeing them come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. I mean, that's what Peter talks about. Where he says, don't count the slowness of God 
as if he were just kind of off somewhere he's not coming. He just desires men to come to repentance. And so he's giving time. He's taking it slow. He's not in a rush. He is gracious. And when you think about um, Jesus with his disciples, is this not what you see? I mean, how many of us with his disciples, we already see, even from the beginning, like, you know, a list, perhaps, you know, 10 things long that we want to bring up about how foolish those disciples are. I can't believe they would think that or say that or do that or look at that. And Jesus is just slow, bringing up a thing one by one here or there. And he knows the heart. He could bring up a list a mile long and just utterly crush these people with all that's off in their hearts and in their lives and in their doctrine and in their behavior. But he takes it little by little because he's not doing it. Uh, out of self-concern, you could say, although he's God, so that's a little weird, because he is doing it for his own glory, but you know what I mean. He's doing it because he loves them. And so he can move at a pace that will serve them well. It will serve them well, and he's doing that with us. So how much more then ought we to be this way with one another? A Christian who rushes to judgment is a contradiction in terms. Because we proclaim a God who is slow to judge. And even go so far as to take our judgment on himself at the cross. So how should we mercifully judge? First, we do it slowly. Secondly, now, we do it, we see, prayerfully. Let me show you what I mean. Imagine there is a real issue. Imagine that you do have the facts. You've taken it slow. You've asked questions. And you see something now that, oh gosh, I think that is serious enough that God needs me to bring that up. Or God might want me to bring that up. Or whatever it is, it might need to be addressed. Well, what next? Point it out. Bring it up. Get in the game. No. Pray. Before we ever speak to the person about it, we speak to God about it. We bring the matter to him. How do we mercifully judge? We do it slowly and we do it prayerfully. Let me give you two reasons why we do it prayerfully. First, prayer reminds us of God's place in the process. Prayer reminds us of God's place in the process. We neglect prayer, I think, at least I can speak for myself. If, If we're honest, we neglect prayer because we just don't think it works. We just kind of think that, you know what, more is going to get done if I get my hands dirty and I get in. And so when it comes to, say, you know, uh, helping someone, whether it is with a black and white, you know, moral issue or or closed hand doctrinal thing, whatever it is, we think, okay, listen, I'm going to go to a closet somewhere and pray and and something's going to happen. Give me a break. Let me get in there and, and, and I'll change that, that dude with my words. I'll make some stuff happen. But prayer reminds us of God's place in all of this. And he puts us back in ours. Certainly God can use us. Certainly we can be, like Paul Tripp puts it, instruments in the Redeemer's hand. I mean, that's really the point of Luke 6, 37 to 42. Jesus wants us to be used by God to mercifully, lovingly help brothers and sisters remove specks from their eyes. He wants us to love with wisdom. And be used in that way. That's the point of this field guide. To help us be used by God in the lives of other people in a way that actually helps rather than hurts. So God wants us to mercifully judge others. He wants us to be involved in loving in that way. But in all of this, we must not start to think that God actually needs us to get something done. Or that we are even his first string offense. In the whole thing. In um, John 16, 7 to 8, you know, Jesus is talking about his departure. He, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, I will send Nick Weber to you. <laughs> and when he comes, he will convict the world 
concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Here I am. You're welcome, church. Sent straight from God. His gift to you to convict and bring up every matter. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says this. I will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's God's priority. It's God's uh, uh, prerogative. It's God's job to get into the hearts of men and help them grow and change. He is the leading one on the matter. And if he calls us in and wants to use us, awesome. But we slow down and we pray before we ever assume that place in a person's life. No. Second reason why merciful judgment is done prayerfully. Uh, prayer connects us to God's heart for the person. So not only does prayer remind us of God's place in this process of sanctification, prayer connects us to God's heart for the person. And here, just for a brief moment, we're going to do a little hands-on. I want you to think about the person that you are tempted to be most critical of. The person that when you think of them, you just kind of bristle a little bit. Could be your spouse, could be a friend, no longer a friend, could be, you know, a parent, could be a boss, coworker. You got somebody on your mind? Now, take 30 seconds and pray for them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would show his love to them. Pray that God would encourage, would help them. Pray for them. Now, let me ask you a question. First of all, could you even do it? Second of all, if you did, did you not sense, and if you continued in it, I promise you would, a change in your heart towards that person? A change. Things start to shift inside as we bring people to God and pray for them. And we start to have his heart for them. We start to remember the cross, remember the gospel, remember what it is we're called to do and who, who he is and how he loves. It changes. Uh, so the next time that we feel ready to bring up an issue with a person, can I just ask, I want us to commit to speaking a thousand words to God before we ever speak one word to that brother or sister. You don't think you have a fallen fleshly nature that's still waging war? Try to do that. <laughs> but if we do that, a thousand words to God before ever one word to that person, what we will find is if we still feel after those prayers like it's our call to come in and share that one word, that one word will have much more of God in it and much less of me. I want to learn from the way Paul handled the sin-riddled Corinthian church. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 13. He says this, We pray to God that you may not do wrong. We're praying to God that you may not do wrong. And then he goes on in verse 9, Your restoration is what we pray for. These are people that in the context have hurt Paul deeply. Abandon him, denying him, going to other apostles, whatever it is, splintering, factioning off. And he said, man, we pray for you. We pray for your restoration. And then verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 13, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Did you hear that? I know it was quick, but he's, he's giving himself over to prayer for these people. He wants to see 
God lay stuff on their heart. God changed them. God restored them so that when he comes in person, he doesn't have to be severe. He doesn't delight in coming down with his authority and being strong. He doesn't want to have to defend himself or his apostleship or whatever. He doesn't get off on vengeance. What he wants to do is seek God, lay something on their hearts and help them change and be restored. So when he comes, he can encourage and keep building them up. So prayer gets us in that place with God for this person and others. Third and, and finally for today, um, How should we mercifully judge? We do it humbly. We do it humbly. So imagine there is an issue that we feel is important to bring enough to bring up in a brother or sister. Something that severely is impairing their ability to see. We're worried. We're concerned for them. We take it slow. We've 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 asked those questions. We've moved towards them, gotten to know what they're really dealing with, what's really happening. Yes, there is something. We've, we've, we've taken that. We've, we've brought it to God in prayer. We've said a thousand words to him before we're ever coming to them with one. And God says, yeah, you know what? Maybe we should start to move towards them. Maybe, maybe this does need to be addressed. Well, now we get into what should characterize us as we start to move towards. Namely, humility. Humility. Here's what I mean, to put it simply, by humility. Whatever it is we feel important enough to address in another person, we have this deep-seated conviction that we are cut from the same cloth as them and capable of the very same things. A recipe for disaster in this whole process is if you come to someone thinking that you can't even relate to what they're going through. You're so far above. You're so beyond. You're in a second tier as a Christian. That is disastrous when it comes to merciful judgment and truly helping another person. In other words, what I mean by humility here is we are no better. Even if we at the moment are freed from the things that entangle them. We see how we could. We understand how this happens. We come with humility. Listen to Paul in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. He says this. This is awesome. Brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Did you hear that? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Deceives himself. He says it there, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, when you go to help another person in their sin, you better watch your own heart, because you could very easily, Paul knows, be tempted to the same things. And he says, man, if you deceive yourself and start thinking that you're better than another, you're not. You're not. You're cut from the same cloth. You deal with the same things. So when we come to help and restore, we come as a brother or as a sister. We come as a a partner in this pilgrimage on the same road with them. Since the moment I first read these words by Thomas Watson, um, Puritan, I, I have never forgotten them. You'll have to pardon the archaic language But hopefully you catch the picture. It's amazing. And it has forever changed me. He writes this. The sins of the ungodly are looking glasses in which we may see our own hearts. Do we see a heinous or wicked, impious or unbelieving wretch? Behold, a picture of our own hearts. 
Such would we be if God left us. What is in wicked men's practice is in our nature. Sin in the wicked is like fire which flames and blazes forth. Sin in the godly is like fire hid in the embers. Christian, though you do not break forth into a flame of scandalous sin, yet you have no cause to boast, for there is as much sin in the embers of your nature. You have the root of all sin in you and would bear as hellish fruit as any ungodly wretch if God did not either curb you by his power or change you by his grace. Here's what I want you to grab a hold of on that, just the image that he gives us. What is a flame in another person's life is hidden in the embers of my own heart. I see it in, you know, on full fire in your own life. But do I realize that even if I'm not in this sin right now, we're making this error, that very same thing is in the embers of my own heart. And should God restrain his grace, it would, it would, it would catch flame in me as well. Name the sin. I don't care what it is. I don't care how horrible you think it is or how ridiculous you think it is. Name the sin. Murder. Stealing. Adultery. Homosexuality. Pedophilia. I don't care what it is. Do we realize that were it not for the grace of God, I could be caught in the very same thing. Before the grace of God, there goes I. This is what Paul the Apostle came to understand. He stands with Watson in the place of humility. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, Paul has no sense that, man, I am a second tier kind of Christian. I'm an apostle, baby. I've come as a blessing to the church to show you what's up. No, he doesn't have that at all. He said, I'm the least. I am the least. Do you know what God saved me from, man? It's worse than what you're doing. (laughs) And if I'm any different at all, if I've made any progress in the faith, it's because God has been gracious to me. And you know what? He can be gracious to you. In fact, that's the whole point of the Apostle Paul's life, as we'll see probably next time. So that sinners would look in and go, wow, if God could do that with Paul, he could do that with me. Let me tell you something. When a person speaks to you from that place of humility, when a person addresses something in your life from that place, like I could be, I'm here with you. I understand that. That same stuff is in me. Don't you hear that a little different? Doesn't it come off a little bit more kind? Aren't you more prone to tune your ears into what they're sharing? It's not above you, crushing you. These people are underneath you and they love you and you sense it. We're almost done, but let me give you an illustration here. C.J. Mahaney was once asked, um, what should I do with my child's idolatry? Uh, The person was asking about video games. Kids addicted to video games. Okay. What should I do with my child's idolatry? How do I bring it up? How do I address this in their lives? Well, his response is wonderful. And it's everything I'm after here. This is what he says. In general, you want your child, this is where he starts, you want your child to be convinced that you can identify with them. You're cut from the same cloth. So I want to find illustrations from my life that parallel an illustration in his life. So I could say, son, this is not a foreign topic to your dad. We are fellow sinners, both in need of a savior. 
It's going to have a different tone to it when you come at it like that. So let's say for my son, fear of man would be a category. Well, your dad is just as familiar with that, son. And here are the, the ways fear of man will play out in my life today. Not here are the temp or excuse me. Yeah, not here are the ways fear of man played out when I was 16. No, here are the ways I fear that fear of man is a real temptation to your father this week. Right now, meet him in the sin. I think by humbling myself, I hope I make it easier for him to receive from me so that when I say, listen, it's not listen to your self-righteous father who is angry at you because he doesn't understand why it requires this kind of attention to help you see how stupid a video game is. It is too easy for me to view my son's form of idolatry as childish. But in essence, at root, there is no difference between our idolatries. His expression is consistent with a 12-year-old. Mine is consistent with a 56-year-old. But in essence, it's no different. Therefore, I must make sure my heart is softened by my own sinful tendencies. Is that awesome? Wow, what if we did that? So let me just end with this. Though Christians can often be the most painfully arrogant, coming down on others who don't think the same way as us or, or act the same way as us, we ought, to be, we ought to be the most profoundly humble. Because we are a people of the cross. And what the cross does more than anything, before it puts us back together, <laughs> it utterly undoes us. Before it lifts us up, it lowers us, right? It leads us to the confession with Peter in Acts 15, 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Speaking of the Gentiles. We are on the same ground. We are in the same place of need as the Gentiles. Though we're Jews. So many Jews would have choked on their food when they heard that. What did Peter just say? We're all in the same place. That it doesn't matter if you're Gentile or Jew. It doesn't matter if you're murderer or valedictorian. If you're adulterer or monk. If you're thief or philanthropist. All are equally condemned in their sin before God. All are equally in need of his grace. And God is so ready, so happy to give it. And we are a people who receive that. Are we a people who give it? Let's pray. I thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you are slow in your judgment. Thank you that you, God, are the one who leads the way in approaching things with us at the right time. Thank you, God, that you even humbled yourself and came down. Though you knew no sin and took on our sin. Oh, God, we, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would bring us back to you, bring us back to the cross, help us to stand amazed, stand undone by it, so that we can faithfully lead others to it. In Jesus' name, amen.